everybody. Good to see you tonight. Uh, we are in Isaiah chapter 4. We're going to begin at the beginning of the chapter. Isaiah chapter 4. So we missed a week. Obviously last week we couldn't be here. We couldn't be together. Um, I think it was ice. Was it ice? Yeah. My wife was talking and I paying attention. Yeah, it was ice. So we missed a week, uh, which is unfortunate because I had it. I thought time perfectly so that we would have had class last week, ideally, and then this week we would have class. And this week, if we had had class last week, this week we would be finishing chapter six. Um, and that's the perfect way to end this class that kind of started in the middle of the quarter. It would have been the perfect way to end with the last week of the quarter. Uh, because chapter 6 ends the introduction phase of the book of Isaiah. So for those of you who are going to be leaving to go to another class, or if you're teaching your own class, then you would have at least got some kind of a completion you know, to the study. Then um, you can come back to it, because this class is going to go on for a little while. Um, if you are in that position, if you're going to be leaving um, for whatever reason, hopefully you're not just leaving, but if you're going to another class or something like that to teach or to... to another class is a good class. Do what? The other class is a good class. Frank is going to be teaching a class on Christian living in room one next quarter. So if you're interested in that, by all means. But uh, if you're going to be there or if you're going to be here, if you're teaching some of the kids, uh, if you're not going to be here, then there are books for you. Uh, so you can pick up one of those. Um, if you're going to be here in the next quarter, you can just hold off. Uh, there's 30 of them, so get one per couple or so. Um, all right. So as I said, we're in the introduction phase. We've studied chapter 1. Chapter 1 is the introduction to the problem. Why, why is this book written? It's written because Judah is a nation that's gone so far off the rails that all that God has left to do in his arsenal is to send them into captivity, which is ultimately what's going to happen. Assyria is the big bad right now we're dealing with. Ultimately, it will be Babylon that takes them. But So you have a definition of the problem. What's going on? Judah is sinful. That's what's going on. Then you go to chapter 2, and you have the introduction to the solution to the problem. There at the beginning of the chapter, in particular, where God says, I'm going to punish you, but there's a greater, better kingdom coming, a kingdom that is the Lord's house, the mountain of the Lord's house, that will be established, where all people will worship me, and all people will be my people. Etc. And then we went to chapter 3. You are here right now. We're in 3 and 4. Uh, and what basically this condenses down to is, in chapter 3 especially, look at how bad you are. Let, let me just give you a breakdown, a listing, just in, in a part, not even at all, of all of the sins that Judah is entangled with. In addition to that, look how bad things are going to be. Look at the consequences of your actions. What am I going to do to you is chapter the end of 3, going into 4, and then toward the end of it, uh, look how good it's going to end up. We'll get to that as we get to the end of this chapter 4. What's still to come, because chapter 4, if you if you read ahead, is only a few verses. So we'll get to chapter 5 here in a minute. Chapter 5 is, the, the beginning is the song of Isaiah, and it's about the vineyard of God, which is just a beautiful par parable, beautiful metaphor for what uh, Judah is. It's God's vineyard. And he uses that illustration of, I planted this vineyard, and you produce wild grapes. And you get this idea of the thought process of God. I did this thing, I expected this, and you gave me something else that I didn't expect. So we'll talk about that in five. And then next week we'll have to get to it, the end of the introduction. One of the most amazing chapters of the whole Old Testament, which is the commission of Isaiah. He's called up in a vision to the throne of God, and he stands before God, and he is given his mission to go preach. And the things he sees, what is said, the visual that he is uh, entranced by, it's all just amazing stuff. So we'll get to that. Uh, Lord willing, next week. But right now we're in chapter 4. So we're right in the middle of the look how bad things are and look how it's going to end up phase of the introduction. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. 
If you remember, before I read it, if you remember a couple weeks ago when we were in chapter 3, one of the things that was talked about was, look at all these sinful men on all their sinful activities. Toward the end of the chapter, look at the sinful women and all their sinful activities. And one of the things we read about the sinful women of Judah was they like to, you know, doll themselves all up and just go out like, like harlots and, and prostitutes and hookers and things. And they, they make themselves um, a sexual attractive um, sinner. And now look at the converse. Look at the, the result of that. Verse 1, as a result of the punishment God's going to level out against oh. them, in that day, the day of God's wrath, seven women will take hold of one man, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own clothing. Only let us be called by your name to take away our reproach. It was in that culture considered a shameful thing for a woman of age not to be married. Um, even, even in the case of uh, a widow, it was considered, um, uh, you know, uh, I don't want to say shame in that case, but still it was less than ideal for a woman of age not to have a husband. And so here, the situation is so dire because Judah's best men are going to go off to fight the invaders that are coming in to punish the people on behalf of God, the Assyrians or eventually the Babylonians, and they're all going to die. And so there's not going to be men left over, just there's smatterings of them. And so it's going to get so bad that a man is going to be such a hot commodity that seven women are going to grab a hold of one man and say, you don't have to feed us, you don't have to clothe us, we'll buy our own clothing, we'll bake our own bread. All you have to do is just let us wear your name. Just put us in your family. That's how desperate things are going to be. We're a long way from chapter 3's version of the current Judean women, you know, shaking and baking and things as they walk because they can attract anybody they want. Now there's nobody to attract. They're desperate. Verse 2. In that day shall the branch of the Lord be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped of Israel. So, contrast. All right, You have the women of Judah in verse 1, desperate and in a pitiful, sad state. To look at them is to pity. But in that same, uh, as a consequence of it, the result of all this, what's going to come out of this, verse 2, the branch of the Lord is going to be there, and the branch of the Lord is going to be beautiful and glorious. Now, this idea of the branch of the Lord is going to come up later in Isaiah. It's going to come up in Zechariah, the prophet. A few of the prophets use and latch on to this illustration of the Messiah to come and of his kingdom and of his era as this branch, this, this sprout, sprouting of holiness of God. And that's kind of hinted at and kind of planted, no pun intended, here in this uh, verse 2. In that day, not the actual moment of punishment, but in that consequences of the, the happening then God's beautiful branch is going to come up. In the era of ugliness, something beautiful will rise. And the fruit of the earth will be excellent and comely for them that are escaped of Israel, the remnant that we read about in earlier chapters. You have in Judah, you have these uh, faithful few, these few who are willing to do what is right when the whole majority are doing what is wrong and happily doing so. And this faithful few people are holding on to righteousness and holding on to virtue and holding on to morality. And they're grossly outnumbered. They're mocked. They're ridiculed. They're belittled. They're shunned. They're forgotten about. And then they're all going to go into captivity. And who's going to come out is just those, those faithful ones. As we're going to see as we read through the text, the people who come out of captivity are not people who turn to God. They're the people who are always with God. The people who turned away from God are going to die. Like in the wilderness, when that whole generation died and a whole new generation entered the promised land. Same idea here. So look at the way it's described. This branch and the consequences in a few different words in this verse. It shall be beautiful, the King James says. 
prominent is what it really means. It's uh, an item of importance that you put on a pedestal and you display for all to see. It will be glorious, the King James says. The word means weighty, uh, an item of great value. It's, it's not a 100% always rule, but it's just generally the case. Things that are heavy tend to have value. Things that are light tend not to have much worth. Weighty things are valuable things, and that's what the word means. It shall be excellent, it's described as. The word means majestic. It's the cream of the crop. It it's, uh, catches the eye. It's something remarkable. It shall be comely. The word means beautiful. Maybe not to the eyes of the world, but to the eyes of God looking for righteous things. Curiously, and it's a long way off, when we get to chapter 53, the way the Messiah is described is almost the opposite of this. Here comes this man who is average looking, run of the mill. Nothing about him strikes you as kingly or priestly or royal or divine. He just looks like a random guy. In fact, sub-random, I mean sub-average kind of person. And yet that's the one um, in whom our salvation is dependent. But from the eyes of God's perspective, it's beautiful, it's comely, it's weighty, it's precious, and so forth. Verse 3. And it shall come to pass that he that is left in Zion and he that remains in Jerusalem shall be called holy. And every one that is written among, uh, even everyone that is written among the living in Jerusalem. This is talking about the faithful that are left. Babylon is not really said here, but that's the ultimate action. So it's referring to those who are going to come out of Babylon. Who are they? What are they going to look like? Those that are left in Zion, not like those who remain behind, but those who come back and occupy Zion. Who's left after all this is over that's going to be in Zion? It's going to be those who are called holy, which you're certainly not calling current day Judah that word. Everyone that is written among the living in Jerusalem, not the dead, but those who survived, those who endured, those who prospered through this punishing time. Verse 4. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion... And shall have purged the blood of Jerusalem from the midst thereof by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning. The reason for captivity and the reason for the death of all these people that we've been talking about. Just think about, the, as we've said multiple times, the majority of the nation is sinful. There's only a faithful few. Okay, but if you just put your, number, your mind just in terms of the numbers, God is going to punish to the point of death a lot of people. And the reason for all that is the same reasoning behind every other major catastrophic judgment activity of God. You go back to the flood. A small amount of people lived. Everybody else died. You go to Sodom and Gomorrah. Like one guy, even his wife, turned back and turned to a pillar of salt. Everybody else dies in a hailstorm of fire and brimstone. Um, you can go on. There's a long list of them. And every example of them, when you first look at it, the first thought you think of is punishing, judgment, uh, retribution, vengeance. And that's only half the equation. The flood punished all the sinful world. But the flood also washed away the sinful world so that Noah could start a new, better world that wasn't so convoluted with sin. The uh, destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah punished the sinners, but it also allowed Lot an escape from that sinful environment. The judgment of Jesus Christ. We use it and we say it in that way and we think of it only in negative terms. Judgment day. We say it as a horrible thing. Well, it's only judgment day for the wicked. For the rest of us, it's judgment day. You say it with a happy tone. Because for the rest of us, for those who are faithful, the few, judgment day is enter in your good and faithful. Enter into the joy that's prepared for you. It's a better thing. It's a happy day. 
So there's always two sides to the justice of God, two sides to the judgment of God. He comes down on the one hand to the wicked, but to this other hand, he comes down with good for those who are good. God's justice is only half about vengeance. The other half is about salvation, and you see that here. What does he say here? I'm going to wash away your sin. How is he going to wash away their sin? When they go into captivity and they're murdered by the Babylonians, when they're, when they're brutalized, when they're raped and pillaged, when they're, when they're uh, you know, treated like second-class citizens, if that, on a good day. Through all of that, God says, when you come out, those who come out, you're going to have learned your lesson, and you're going to be a lean, mean, righteous machine. You're not going to be the same sinners that you were before. There is a positive to this. It's going to be bloodshed, but it's going to wash away all your wicked. And that's, I don't think, is a reference to Jesus in particular, though you could probably make some application, because he says in the text, um, I'm going to purge your blood. At least that's, that's what mine says. What does is, what is your Bible say? Mine says, um, purge the blood of Jerusalem. Is that what yours says? Cleanse the blood, purge the blood, same idea. Which implies what's dirty. If you have to cleanse the blood of Jerusalem, what's dirty? Their blood is dirty. And so your blood is dirty. Your blood is defiled by sin. So I'm going to cleanse. I'm going to drop you in the bath of Babylon. I'm going to scrub you until it hurts. So you come out clean. But that implies their blood is dirty. Now, maybe that's an allusion to becoming Christ, whose blood is pure, and which will ultimately take away sin in a grand spiritual way. Or maybe it's just a metaphor. I don't know. But that's something to think about. Verse 5. The point is, you're going to go in, and it's going to be bad, but there's good to come of, come of it. Again, look how bad things are going to be, but look how you'll end up. Verse 5. And the Lord will create upon every dwelling place of Mount Zion, and upon her assemblies, a cloud and smoke by day. My Bible says smoke. Yours might say something else. And the shining of flaming fire by night, for upon all the glory shall be a defense. In other words, you're going to go into captivity. It's going to be ugly. It's going to be horrible. You're going to come out of captivity. And it's going to be like a reset button was pushed. And God, Isaiah, is taking the people's minds back to the beginning of the nation. Their beginning days when they were just this nomadic people who went where the cloud in the daytime told them to go or followed. And at night went where the pillar of fire pointed them to. Right? They were just a people wholly dependent on God. I mean, he gave them their manna. He gave them their quail. He gave them their direction. He gave them their guidance. He gave them their law. He gave them their protection. It was, it, he was all they needed. And that was a good thing, too, because he was all they had. They didn't have land. They didn't have territory. They didn't have boundaries. They didn't have those things. They were just a nation and God. And God says, when you come out of captivity, it's a smoke in the daytime and it's fire at night. It's, we're starting over. I'm going to be the one that you lean on for defense. Which, of course, right now... They're under the threat, the specter of Assyrian invasion. And they're looking every other witch away for their defense, for their alliance, for their help. And God's like, I'm right here, guys. I'm all you need. Verse 6. And there shall be a tabernacle for a shadow in the daytime from the heat. Tabernacle, a very religiously charged word. It just means a tent in this context. I'm going to shelter, shade you from the heat in the daytime. And I'm going to give you a place of refuge and a cover from storm and from rain. God is not saying when you come out of captivity and you go back to Jerusalem and you start over, you'll never have any problems again. We've already read Daniel. We've already read the prophecies of chapters 9 through 12. We've already read all the bad things that are going to happen. God is not promising you while you're on this earth no more problems. God is saying you're going to rely on me and I will get you through the problems. I will shelter you from the problems. The rain is still falling, but I'm going to cover your head. 
You're not going to drown in a flood. You're not going to be scorched by the, the heat. I'm going to give you shade. I'm going to give you cover. I'm going to be your protector. Which he could be right now. I mean, God isn't like not existing. It's just they're not listening. They don't want. They've run away from God. Into the blazing heat. Into the, the scorching sun. And into the storms of life. And he's saying, fine, run. Go that way. Go east. You'll hit Babylon here in a minute. Turn left at at Tel Aviv or something, and you'll, you'll hit Babylon. That's not what he says. You do, and then what? You come back to me, and you'll be, you'll be protected again. Now, that's the end of the chapter, which is the end of this little section here. Look how bad things are, how bad it's going to be, but in the end, I'm going to scrub you, I'm going to wash you, I'm going to purge you, and you're going to be mine again. That's, that's the goal. That's the point of punishment, parents. The point of punishment is not to retaliate, the point of punishment is not to get back at your kids. The point of punishment is yeah. to correct, to show, and to, to nurture. So they'll be right. And that's what God's doing. Now we come to chapter 5. Which begins with a song. And it begins from Isaiah's words. When it says, now I will sing. This is Isaiah, the prophet. It says, I will sing to my well-beloved. That's God. A song of my beloved. I will sing a song of, about God about God's vineyard. And in the metaphor, that vineyard is going to be Judah, God's nation. And here's how the song, it's not a tune, it doesn't rhyme, it's not like that. It's Think of it like a minstrel, like a, a guy in the king's court, you know, would, would play the, the, what's that banjo-looking instrument thing? Lute. Lute, thank you. He'd play that and he'd sing a song, you know, he'd make fun of the neighboring kingdom, think something like that, okay? So I'm not going to sing it for you, but this is what it is. It's a very short little song, it's just a little ditty, and it goes like this. My beloved has a vineyard and a very fruitful hill. And I read it. It sounds like I'm about to rhyme, but there's no rhyme. Verse 2. And he fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof and planted it with the choicest vine and built a tower in the midst of it and made a winepress therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes and it brought forth wild grapes. Now, that's it. That's the song. You go to verse 3 and now God speaks in the first person. But the song is an introduction to this illustration that's going to carry you through for the majority of chapter 5. Which is this, God, the well-beloved of Isaiah, which no one else in Judah would call him that right now, very few would. He says he has made this vineyard, and he made it, first of all, on a very fruitful hill. He didn't plant it in a difficult place where if it doesn't prosper, he could say, well, you know, bad environment, what can you do? No, he made sure to plant his vineyard on the best spot available, all right? So he had every expectation for something good to happen. Verse 2, to continue that thought process. He fenced it. He gathered out the stones thereof. He planted the choicest vines there. He built a tower of defense in the midst of it. He made a wine press. Before it ever produced a single drop of grape juice, he'd already made a wine press. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes. In other words, he did all of this. And he said, okay, I've done it all. Now all I need is, is for the grapes to start hatching. All I need is for it to start growing. God is not going to make the grapes grow. Because in the metaphor, that will be interjecting against their free will. Instead, I have provided the environment. I have made this perfect little spot. A land flowing with milk and honey, you might say. And I put you there. I didn't put you in the desert. I put you at the end of the desert. I put you in the green land after the desert so that you would have prosperity. And I protected you. Look what it says. I fenced it, marked the boundary so that people would know where not to go. I gathered out the stones, uh, beautified it created it so that it would look gorgeous, planted the choicest, not the cheapest, 
but the choicest available vines to yield the choicest best grapes to make the best grape juice, built a tower in the middle of it to ensure no thieves, no wild animals would come in and harm it, uh, made a wine press, again, before it ever produced a single drop. He had already made the plants to, to harvest it. Why? Because he's, as we'll say in a minute, done everything he's supposed to do. So, I mean, why wouldn't it? Why wouldn't that wine press be necessary? And so he, then he looks at it and he says, okay, what kind of grapes are we going to produce? Should produce good grapes. And he says it produced, what What does your Bible say? Wild grapes. Wild grapes. Okay, I have wild. Who else is a different word? Worthless. Worthless. Someone else? Bad fruit. Bad, yeah. When you have, again, what did God do? He gave you every advantage, Judah. He gave you every reason to succeed. And you, not even grasp failure from the jaws of victory, you ran from victory as far away as you could, dove out of the protective land into the ditch and said, well, this must be God's fault that I'm in this ditch. You jumped into the ditch. You shined God as he tried to lunge for you and protect you. And you said, no, I'm going this way. And you walked right off the cliff like Wile E. Coyote. And then as you crashed, you said, well, how dare you, God? Who walked off the ditch into the ditch? Who walked off the cliff? Guess what God is saying here? He says, did you produce good grapes or bad grapes? You tell me. Is your situation right now hunky and dory or is it miserable? You tell me. What's your condition right now? And they're going to not lie to themselves. They're going to say, well, things are not swell right now. Well, whose fault is that? And they will blame God all the way up to the time and including the captivity of Babylon. Ezekiel's whole book, whole, most of Ezekiel's first half is about that. You stubborn, ignorant people blaming God when it's your fault. Like, as they're getting a spanking, they're like, this is all your fault. And God's like, you're the one who jumped in the ditch. You know? <laughs> Idiot children. Verse 3. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, you men of Judah, my Bible says judge, which means you tell me. you got two options. You choose. Look at the, look at the environment. Make your decision. Judge between me and my vineyard. You tell me, did I do everything I was supposed to do or not? Verse 4. What could he, what, sorry, verse 4. What could have been done more to my vineyard? In other words, what else could I have done, God says, so that you would not have fallen into idolatry? What, what was I, God is asking them, what was I lacking? What did I miss? What did I forget to do? What did I not do good enough that now you're in this terrible condition that you're in. What, what could I have done more that I didn't do? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, you tell me, did you bring forth wild grapes or did you not? Did you bring forth sour grapes? I mean, they're bringing sour grapes now. They're bringing complaints now. But did you bring bad grapes or did you bring good grapes? Because God can't bring the grapes. God can give you the environment. God can set you on the path. But it's your feet. You got to walk them. You got to choose to stay in the path or to go off, off road and into the ditch. So just God just says to them, this is the condition you're in. There's no denying you're in the condition. Whose fault is it? They want to blame God. Their first instinct, it's God's fault. But God just says, stop, back up. Did I or did I not give you this environment? Did you or did you not squander it? I want you to notice, this is not, like if you go back a couple of verses, um, hang on, like verse 2. Look again at verse 2, at the end of the verse. He looked, the King James says, that it should bring forth wild grapes, or bring forth grapes, and it brought wild grapes. What does your Bible say at the end of verse 2? 
He looks for it in the yield grapes, but he yielded wild grapes. He looked for it too. Is that what your Bible says? He expected it. He expected it to. All right. Here's what it means when your Bible says God expected something. It doesn't mean God assumed this would happen, and then when it didn't, well, I didn't see this coming. God has never in history said, well, I didn't see this coming. God has never not known what was coming. Okay? I want to make that very clear for those watching at home or anyone here. God has never been caught by surprise ever. Don't let anybody tell you God doesn't know that you're going to do something stupid tomorrow. Because he knows. What God does when he says, I expected this and you didn't do it, what that means is God provided you the environment and you, by your free will, my, by my free will, chose to do something stupid and not do what God expected of me. Because everything God expects of me is righteous and good. The word expect there means I prepared you for this. I wanted you to do this. I commanded you to do this. But I can't make you do this. You must choose. And they chose not to. So God was not caught by surprise. God knew. But God reacted to their choices. There's a very big difference between God knowing you're going to do wrong and then waiting until you do to react to it. And just saying, well, I guess God didn't know. No, God knows, but you, you choose. Okay? Anyway, yeah. verse 4. What could I have done more? You tell me. Did you bring forth good grapes or not? And they did not. Verse 5. And now go to. I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. So we, the, the conditions have been laid out. They're beautiful. The problem has been established. You ran out of them. You ran out of the good conditions. The truth of the reality presented. Now, because you ran away, you're in a pickle. So what am I going to do with my vineyard? I did all this work making it pretty. And you ruined it. So what am I going to do? Verse 5. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to take away the hedge. Remember, he planted that beautiful little border. So that's gone. It's going to be eaten up. I'm going to break down the wall. Remember, he put that little tower there. That's gone. It's going to be trotted down. In other words, when the invaders come in, you're not going to get to say, Well, you can't cross that line. God gave us that line. Yeah, he did. And you said, we don't need you, God. So God said, I'll just take that line with me. I'll, you don't need that border. You don't need a thing that'll say, if you cross this line, God's going to punish you because you don't need God. So good luck doing it on your own. You're going to be invaded. You're going to be trampled. Your beautiful area is going to be trodden. Verse 6. And I will lay it waste. Now, God is not going to personally come down and start stomping away. But God is going to send and allow Babylon to come in and lay it waste and the details of which are graphic and horrible the the climax of which is the burning down of the holy temple and God in the beginning of Ezekiel I just studied Ezekiel so it's on my mind in the beginning of Ezekiel he has a vision of the the holy presence of God leaving the temple and if you're Ezekiel or if you're any Jew and you watch the presence of God on his chariot Wheeling on out of there, you better get scared. Because if God's leaving his house, there's nobody there to protect it. And God left his house, and Babylon came in and burned it down. I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned nor digged. No one's going to come in and just take it over and make it their own. No, it's, it's a cinder. There shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. Let's not forget God is the bringer of rain. He causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. But sometimes he says no rain for the unjust. He causes the drought to come to the unjust too. So God says, you don't want my blessings? I won't rain any blessings on you, including rain. So no growing your vineyard without rain. 
Verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, because some of them are really thick and they wouldn't have caught that. So to make it clear, you guys are the vineyard, Isaiah says. And the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. And he looked for judgment, the King James says. He looked for justice to be done. He looked for right doings. He looked for his people to do the right thing. And behold, oppression. In other words, to go back to the earlier chapters that we talked about, when Judah really boiled down the problems, and we got into some things like sexual sins, and we'll get to some here in a little while, you know, uh, debauchery and frivolous living. But the ones that he really hammered home in the opening chapters was the the national sins, the the nation as a whole, the collective not taking care of their poor and needy. And again, that's reiterated here. You get the sense that Isaiah, as he walked the streets of Jerusalem, saw beggars be passed by, saw people in need be overlooked. And that just, it comes out in his inspired writing. So again, God says, I looked for you to do the right thing, and I saw you doing oppressive things. I saw you oppressing instead of helping. I looked for righteousness, and instead I hear the cries, the pleas, the, the, the shouts of help, the yelps of pain of your citizenship, your people. Verse 8. So let's talk about the rich people of Judah. Woe to them that join house to house and lay field to field, till there be no place that they may be placed alone in the middle of the earth, the King James says. Shame on you, rich people, whose house is already big enough, but you want it even bigger still, so you kick out your neighbors so you can take their house, you kick out the person living on the land so you can have more land until there's no land for anybody, and you're just living on this huge acreage while poor and needy people are starving and dying in the corners and starving and dying in the gutters. All because you wanted to be what the King James says is in the middle of the earth, you just wanted a little house in the middle of nowhere. You wanted to be left all alone. You didn't want to be bothered. And so you didn't bother to help people in need. In this chapter, you're going to get covetousness, debauchery, unbelief, arrogance, lying, a perversion of justice. You're going to get all kinds of sins. But he starts with the one that is on his heart over and over. You're not good to the people when you could help and you don't help. Keep going, verse number 9. That poor baby. Verse 9. In mine ears, said the Lord of hosts, of a truth... Many houses shall be desolate, even great and fair, without inhabitant. It's just it's the sequel to the previous verse. You got these beautiful houses and you wanted more, so you shoved people out of their homes so you could have a bigger house. Well, fine. All your houses that you love more than me are going to be desolate. All your houses, great and fair, huge and beautiful. What, what's the point of them when no one's living there? Oh, but I'm living there, God. No, you're living in Babylon. You were in a sack for a dress. Verse 10. Yea, as a result of the punishment of the land itself, ten acres of vineyard will yield one. The King James says, bath. What does your Bible say? Bath. It's immune to measurement, eight gallons. Okay. Uh, and the seed of an omer shall yield an ephah. Again, your Bible say those words. These are Hebrew units of measurement. They break down like if you read Harry Potter, the way the monetary system breaks down in the wizard community. It's all it's all convoluted. It's kind of like that. Um, Let's see, an ephah is one-tenth of a homer, a homer is ten bushels, and a bushel is about eight gallons. All right, everyone got that? It's on the test, so get that down. (laughs) The point is, one vine should produce eight gallons on its own. You're going to have ten acres of vines to get one eight-gallon bucket's worth of, of grape juice. In other words, this land of milk and honey, no longer productive. This This fertile land... In the fertile crescent, it's called that for a reason, you're going to have trouble getting a loaf of bread out of 
a week's worth of harvesting, a year's worth of harvesting, etc. That's the idea. Verse 11. Woe to them who rise up early in the morning. All right, farmers, oh, except no, they're not rising up to feed the cows and chickens so you can follow strong drink. You get up early so you can get a start on your drinking. And you can continue all till night till wine inflames you. Shame on those people who don't do work, who in the context don't help people, but only, only fill your belly with revelry and sinfulness. Same idea. Verse 12. And you gather all your friends for your midnight party, verse 12, with your harps and your vials and your tabrets and your pipes and your pipe as in the flute and your wine. And you're all in your feasts, but they regard not the work of the Lord, nor consider the operation of his hands. You got to remember back then, entertainment was basically a party, a get together. There was no television, there were no movies, there were no concerts and things like that. When you imagine like a sinful activity today in a big group of people, don't, because your mind can go all kinds of crazy places, because we've devised in the 2,700 years since some really far out ways to be sinful. Back then, smaller imaginations, all they could do was just have big drunken parties. And that's what they did. They would get together, they'd eat a whole lot until they were sick, which is what the word prodigal means, by the way. It means glutton, and the word glutton means prodigal. It just means someone who eats until he's in excess. It, prodigal doesn't mean sinful. It means uh, an eater of excess, because that's what sinfulness was, and, and to, to just gorge yourself and just have these lavish parties where you just are feeding your own belly, filling your own self. It's a form of selfishness and sinful selfishness. So you have these big parties with your harps and violins and your tabrets, which is like a tambourine, and your flutes, and then you have the wine flowing freely and your big feast, and nobody cares about doing any good, just as a general idea, called here the work of the Lord. You don't care what God has provided. You don't care what God has expected. You only care about filling your belly, satisfying your own lusts, and just enjoying life. Eat, drink, and be merry is all you care about. Verse 13. Enough about America. Verse 13. <laughs> Therefore, my people are gone into captivity. And you could just stop. You could end the book right there. I mean, but don't because we need to learn about Jesus. But that's, that's the whole point of Isaiah's lamenting. For 39 chapters, he's going to do this. And it's all summed up in that one eight-word phrase right there. That's why you're going into captivity. Because of all that you don't do and all that you do, all your sinfulness, all your rejection of righteousness, that's why you're going into captivity. Bad grapes. Because you have no knowledge, and your honorable men are famished, and the multitude dried up with thirst. There is no Hosea, uh, is it 4, eight? No, 4, 6. Hosea 4, 6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Yeah. Same idea. It is not, it's not knowledge in the, just in the sense of uh, knowing facts. Because all these people knew God. They understood Jehovah was real. Imagine this. Like we think about sinners in our culture today. How they reject even the idea of God. Well, there is no God out there. Therefore, I will live <laughs> my life however I want. Okay, well, if there is no God, then sure, I totally understand that. But these people would never say there is no God. They believed that Jehovah existed. They just didn't care. Which somehow to me is even worse and even more terrifying. That they understood and they knew their history. They knew their history. They knew the flood. They knew Sodom and Gomorrah. They knew all the things that God can do and has done and will do again. But they're so engorged in their own sinfulness, they didn't care. So it, it almost makes you understand why it's so hard to reach some people today. Because these people didn't care. These people talked to God. I at least get it. So it's not knowledge in the sense of understanding. It's knowledge in the sense of relationship. It's knowledge in the sense of caring. 
These people didn't put the facts into practice. That's how God defines knowledge. Because if you have the facts, you don't apply them, you're an idiot. You don't have knowledge. That's how the Bible calls it. Verse 14. Therefore, hell, the King James says, your Bible say grave or sheol? Sheol. The grave. That's the Hebrew word for the, the unseen place of the dead. It could also be used just for the literal six-foot hole or whatever you had, but it's also kind of in a metaphorical sense, the place for the dead. The place of the dead has opened up, enlarged herself, and opened her mouth without measure. She's going she's gonna to swallow you all up. Hell will, the grave will. And all their glory and their multitude and their pomp, and he that rejoices shall descend into it. Not all of these words are necessarily good, but a few of these words we usually use in a positive way. Glory, but not this way. This is bad glory. This is look how great I am, self-glory. Multitude, that's look how many of us there are who think the same thing. We can't all be wrong. Nope, you're all wrong. And they're pumped. This one's a bad word. This, this one is never good. This is just arrogance that you can see. You just strut with it. And he that rejoices, look how great I am. They're all in the hole. They all go in. And the mean man, the King James says, the average person, not just these extraordinarily, obviously awful people, but just the guy you never even notice who's just quietly living a sinful life. He's going into, he's going to be brought down. Your mighty man, your big, powerful, strapping soldier, hero, fighter on the battlefield, your version of Goliath. No, he's going in the hole too. He'll be humble. The eyes of the lofty shall be humble. The people who put themselves on pedestals when no one else will. And Darn it, I'm going to be on a pedestal if I have to put myself up there. No, you'll be humble too. Verse 16. But the Lord of hosts shall be exalted. Again, look at the way Isaiah writes. He likes to write like this. Build, 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 but the opposite will happen. These arrogant, lift themselves up people be brought down. Okay, well now we have a void. Because there used to be all these people on pedestals and now they're all been knocked off their pedestals. That's fine. God will be on a pedestal. Verse 16. The Lord of hosts will be exalted through his justice and judgment. And the God that is holy shall be sanctified, set apart in righteousness. God will be recognized as righteous again. God will be seen by these punished people as the one we should have been listening to all along. Verse 17. Then shall the lambs feed after their manner, and the waste places of the fat ones shall the strangers eat. This is describing, like let's, let's call it the after aftermath. After the captivity, when God is exalted again, Judah's land will be restored. Before or during captivity, the, the punishment of the land, it's going to be desolate. You won't be able to produce any uh, grapes. You won't be able to produce any wheat. Your land is going to be destroyed. But then afterward, lambs are going to be frolicking. You can just see them bouncing in your imagination. Feeding after the waste. The waste places of the fat ones shall strangers eat. There's going to be enough food for everybody to enjoy. Verse 18. Woe unto them that draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sin... As it were with a cart rope. That's some old language. So give me your translation. Somebody verse 18. Yours says cart rope too? Yeah. Usually when I have you uh, read your verses. Because I'm reading my notes. So I can make sure that I remember what cart rope is in this case. I'm pretty sure. I, you'd think I'd write it down. But no. I have no idea what a cart rope is. I forgot to study that phrase. So I don't have it. Um, they must pull their crimes against God. And loaded down wagons. That makes sense. Let's go with that. That's what I wrote, so I'm sure it's right. I would have done the research before I wrote it, and then I just forgot what it was. So this is how it goes. Anyway, let's just go back to the beginning of the verse. Woe unto them that draw iniquity with cords of vanity. You're tugging your sins 
behind you. As, as heavy and weighed down as they are, you refuse to let go of them. You could let go of them and be light as a feather, but you're dragging them with you. Your sin, as it were, with a cart rope. You have a cart, you pull a cart with a rope, let's go with that. You're tugging it along <laughs> behind you. It's a heavy burden, and you're weighing yourself down with it. That makes sense. Let's assume that's true. Verse 19. You people who say, let him make speed and hasten his work so that we may see it. And let the counsel of the Holy One draw near and come that we may know it. These are people who are literally asking for it. These are the people who are hearing Isaiah and other prophets say, if you guys don't straighten up, judgment will rain down on you. And they're looking at their watch and they're saying, well, it's been five years and no judgment has rained down. If God's going to do it, let's get it over with. Let's see it. I've got, you know, I've got bowling tomorrow. Can we get this done by then? Can we hurry this up? If God's going to do it, let's have him do it. Have him make speed. Hurry up, God. Hasten your work. We all want to see what you're going to do. Let the counsel at God's decision of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come so that we can know it. You don't want that. But they're arrogant and they think they can withstand it or they think God is bluffing. God does not bluff. He may change his mind, but only if you repent. But he does not bluff. Verse 20. Who are these foolish people who are daring to say to God, come on and hurry up already? What would possess someone to be so arrogant in the face of the vengeful God? Well, they've been lied to. And as lies sometimes are, these were convenient, comfortable lies, and they chose to believe them. Verse 20. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil. Woe unto them that put darkness for light and light for darkness. Woe unto them that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Now, if you notice a couple of these, you might think, well, some of these are okay. I would want someone to take darkness and exchange it for light, right? No, these are the people who are seeing darkness and saying, it's light, don't worry about it. The people who are seeing light and they're saying, no, don't do that, that's dark. So it's not that they're exchanging bad things and giving you good things. They're saying good things are bad and they're saying bad things are good. That's just, that's all I'm saying. It's, it's, it is what it sounds like. There's no good here. This is just all liars. These are the kind of people who will convince you that doing something that is moral and righteous and good and life-saving and helpful and whatever is a bad thing. And you shouldn't do it. Uh, to to, uh, to uh, take care of an innocent life is somehow selfishness. Or to, um, to kill an innocent life is a good thing to do. That's people who call evil things good and good things evil. Who call uh, light things darkness. And who call dark things light. This is good. You should embrace that. Let's, let's all get abortions. That put bitter things for sweet and sweet things for bitter. And I hate to just say abortion because it's the go-to. It's the first one people think of. But it's because so many people have died. And so it's naturally the first one you yeah. think of. It's, it's a holocaust of the unborn. So naturally your mind would think all these people who are saying, well, it's good. And it was healthy, and it was safe, and it was right, and I'm glad, and it was a beautiful experience. There was that one, that girl who does the AT&T, I think it is, commercials, uh, those stupid commercials, and she just got an abortion. She said it was a beautiful experience. I can't imagine what is so beautiful about an operation where it begins with you having a life growing inside you, and it ends with that life being killed. But that's a beautiful experience. It's, it's a good thing, we'll call it evil, if I say you shouldn't do it. It's an evil thing, we'll call it good. I'll call it beautiful. You know, Matthew, yes, ma'am. Like today, because anything that anybody wants to do, they have, they think they have the right to do it. It's because they don't turn to God, they don't want to obey Him, so they want everything that they want, 
to be right. Yes, and naturally. You tell me no. Yeah, naturally. If you if you take God out of the equation, then you have taken away a a non-you moral authority. You've taken away a standard that is infallible. Like you take that away, and you may say, okay, well, I will listen to government, or I will listen to parents, or I will listen to law, whatever it is. But those are all written by people, and they're fallible, and they change. Our laws change based on what we sinful people want them to be, right? So once you've taken out God, you've taken out an always righteous moral standard. So when that happens, naturally, moral anarchy reigns. It is whatever feels right, whatever seems good, is what I'll do. Because I don't have a standard telling me what's right. I've got to decide for myself. And this is how we end up in ditches. And that's worse than Judah's condition. Verse 21. Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes. Makes sense to me, or as Nana was saying, seems right to me. And they're prudent in their own sight, distinguished, literally, in their own sight. Look how clever I am, they would cry. I, I, I cannot think God. I don't need God. I can be God, which is all humanism is. It's the God of self. I can make the standard of righteousness, and I can change it on my own whims, and I can decide who's right and wrong, and I can cast judgment. 22. Woe to them that are mighty to drink wine and men of strength to mingle strong drink. I can handle it. I will drink and drink and drink and drink until I'm passed out and swallow my own vomit. I can endure that. Which justify the wicked for reward, verse 23, and take away the righteousness of the righteous from him. First part of the verse, they make, they take wicked things and they make it right. Not literally in their own minds. They say, here's this thing that I can show you with book, chapter, verse. I can show you by moral consequence. I can show you however you need me to show you that doing this thing is bad. And you'll hear all that and you'll say, yeah, but I think it's good. And, you know, right there, it feels, it feels good. So I'm going to do it anyway. But I can give you proof that it's bad. Yeah, but it feels right. So I will take this bad thing and I will justify it. I will make it seem right. Justify the wicked because it's good for me for reward. And I will take away the righteousness of the righteous. So it's not just, as these people always say, you live your way and I'll live mine. It never happens that way. The moment you let them live their way, they will live their way and they will say, you must stop living that way. Because you living that way is an affront to me. Because you're living that way and it seems like you're living as though you think my way is wrong. Well, it is because I'm living by the standard that you rejected. I, I didn't decide it was wrong. God did. You chose not to follow God. I'm still following God. I'm over here on this team. And you said, let me live my way. So society said, fine, live your way. And now they're over here living their way, and they're saying, no, you can't live that way. Take away the righteousness of the righteous. You can't do what is right anymore. I'm not going to do what is right, and you can't either. God doesn't take away your free will, but these people want to. 24. Therefore, as, because again, because these people are doing wickedness and God is allowing them to, right? Because that's their choice. But in their wickedness, they're saying, you can't do righteousness. They're worse than what they think God is. 24. Therefore, as the fire devours the stubble and the flame consumes the chaff, so, shall the, so the root shall be as rottenness and their blossom shall go up as dust. They, they, I'm going to finish the verse in a second. You reap what you sow. They've reaped this evil and they will produce vegetation that will just crumble into the wind and be nothingness. Their blossom will go up as dust because they have cast away the law of the Lord of hosts. Does God have a law? 
Does God have a standard of right and wrong? This is the law of the old Moses, the law of Moses. Yes, we don't live by that law anymore. I understand. But does God have a standard of right and wrong? If he doesn't anymore, then what you're saying is God never more says don't do. And yet your whole epistles, half your New Testament is, here are the things God said don't do, y'all. And here's the things God said do. That implies a moral standard. It implies a law. So these people go away from the law of the Lord and despise the word of the Holy One of Israel. Which I, that speaks for itself. 25. Therefore is the anger of the Lord kindled against his people. Very good word choice by Isaiah because he just got through saying your wheat, your, your chaff, your, your husk, your very burnable, flammable material and you have kindled the righteousness and the vengeance of God. The anger of God has sparked against the chaff. So it's going to ignite. And he has stretched forth his hand against them and has smitten them. And the hills did tremble and their carcasses were torn in the midst of the streets. For all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is stretched out still. You're going to be so punished that your land is going to burn. Your people are going to be massacred. And you're going to think, surely that's it. And the God that you rejected, who you ignored, who you laughed at, who you tried to stop other people from following, after he's done all that, his hand of punishment is still extended, and he's not done punishing. And you're going to think, please stop. Well, you should have said please before, when you had the chance. And now it's too late. Now judgment has come. Babylon is here. And I don't know if there was an invading army in history. Maybe the Mongols, who were as bad as Babylon. 26. And he will lift up, the King James says, an ensign, a battlefield banner. He'll lift up his standard for fighters to the nations from afar. This is God doing this. This is God planting his very tall flag in the middle of Jerusalem. And he's planting it as if to say, doors open. Everybody come take it. The land is yours. He's, he's lifted up his sign to the nations from afar and will... I can't even do it. I, yeah, can somebody actually do that and make a whistle happen? I've never seen it done I can whistle like a tune, but I can't do the whistle. But he will do that. He will say, whoop! You know that? He will whistle to them from the end of the earth and say, behold, and they shall come swiftly and speedily. Can we finish? We have three verses left. Yeah, but I choose to ignore it. We have three verses. Hang on. None shall be weary nor stumble. If you got to get your kids, go. None shall be weary nor stumble among them. None shall slumber or sleep. Neither shall the girdle of their loins be loosed, nor the latch of their shoes be broken. These are the soldiers who are coming to punish. They're top of the line. They won't even have shoelaces untied. They're coming for you. 28. Their arrows are sharp. Their bows are bent. Their horses' hooves are counter like flint. And their wheels are like a whirlwind. You're not even going to know it's going to hit you. Because the greatest army the world had ever seen to that point is bearing down on you. Their roaring will be like a lion. And they will roar like young, vibrant, hunting lions. They will roar and they will snatch their prey. And they will carry it away safely to Babylon. And no one's going to stop them. Last verse. And in that day they will roar. I have a speech impediment with ours. Against them like the shouting of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold darkness and sorrow. And the light is darkened in the heavens thereof. People from afar off, when they look at Judah and they see Babylon, it's just this pall over the land. And they're going to say, I'm staying away from there. What's happening there is bad news. And you, he says, are right in the middle of it. But God will not disappear. God has not abandoned the people. He has not vacated his throne. In fact, in the next chapter of the prophet... He's going to go right up to see God on his throne and say, as a result of everything you read in the first six chapter, first five chapters, go tell the people. Go tell them, you're not going to listen to me, but you need to repent anyway. That's the message. 
we'll go back in chapter six. All right, that's all I got. Thank you very much.